and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? How are you doing? Not bad. Not bad. We'll talk about that in a bit, most likely. Before I introduce our amazing guest, I want to go on to introduce the other panelists. So besides me, Richard Littauer. Hello, everyone. We have Justin Dorfman. Justin, how are you doing? Great, Richard. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for asking. Excellent. Okay. On to the good stuff. Today, we have Jono Bacon. Jono Bacon is a self-employed consultant, strategist, open source diva, runs his own communities, helps other people build communities, hard to define person who's been in the field for a long time, also an author. Calling today from San Francisco. Jono, I know that was kind of rambling. Is that a good assessment of what you are? And also, how are you? Uh, it was a great assessment. Online community Lothario. Maybe I should uh, refer to myself as that. I don't know. Wow. Uh, do, <laughs> I don't even know what the word Lothario means. It just seemed to make sense in the moment. Um, it means I'm a womanizer. So it's, it's Oh, I don't want that. One. No, okay. I love my wife. I love my wife very dearly. <laughs> I'm not interested in any kind of womanizing. So yes, so we'll not go with Lothario. But yeah, I'm doing very well. Thank you for thinking of me and, and bringing me on the show. So Yeah. Well, I'm really excited to have you on because there's not a lot of people in open source who make a living outside of their main project, right? We have people mm. like the Henry Jews of the world who work on Babel, and we have people like the Dwayne O'Briens who work for open source program offices at large companies. You're somewhere else. How did yeah. you end up doing what you do? Yeah, I mean, I've had kind of a weird career because when I first got into Linux and open source in 1998, my brother introduced me to it. I went to university and everybody was scrambling to find a job at the end of university. And the idea of going and working for a company was not appealing to me, you know, mm. but I was writing magazine articles for tech magazines, specifically Linux magazines in the UK. And I just thought, why don't I just do more of this? So I ended up being a pseudo journalist, I guess you could say, for a couple of years until I wrote an article about a really cool open source organization in Birmingham that was helping local businesses to use open source in their businesses. And this is like I say, back in like early 2000. So this was kind of new and very unusual. The, the UK had always been like a bit of ahead of the curve in some ways when it came to understanding open source, like a lot of innovation was happening there. So that's the only two years that I've really ever worked in an office. And then we went to Canonical, went to XPRIZE GitHub, but I'd always wanted to do my own thing. Like I just, I love, first of all, the sense of being in control of my own destiny, but I'm just really passionate how to build communities. And my passion is helping other people to build communities easily because it's too complicated. So, you know, when I ended up uh, leaving GitHub, I thought, well, why don't we give this whole consulting thing a go? My, my wife and I were like, is there anyone actually out there who actually wants this? And we were quite uncertain about it. And it's been full time now for about five years. And I've been pretty much fully booked the entire time. And I feel incredibly fortunate that I can do what I love. I feel weird because I also started around five years ago with mm. doing open source community building. And it's yeah. worked really well for me, right? I have the same sort of don't really like putting on a tie and don't really like looking at code all the time, but like open right. source. So what do I do <laughs> in between, right? <laughs> That's great. So what sort of clients do you tend to have? Are they small? Are they Microsoft? What? It's a real mixed bag. So I work with a lot of very early stage companies, often kind of seed stage companies who maybe just had a round of funding or maybe not, where they're trying to figure out how to build a community. I work with a lot of tech companies, I think mainly because of my background in tech and especially in open source. And then some really large companies as well, companies like Deutsche Bank and Santander and Microsoft and Google and various others. And it kind of spans lots of different industries as well. There's a lot of tech firms, but I've worked with 
kind of gaming companies, consumer products. I even worked with, for example, a kind of like a union that was focused on people who put paint and glass into buildings. They wanted to build a community for around the contractors. Cool. And, and this is why I love those kinds of things. It's like, okay, how on earth are we going to do this? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I think a lot of consultants, they want to kind of stay in their wheelhouse because they're nervous about doing new things. I don't know whether I'm some kind of weirdo, but I love especially doing things that I've never done before. And when you're a consultant, you got to operate in the moment. There is no time to learn. You got to give amazing value to your clients. And I love that pressure to do something different, to do something new. And I think that's one of the main reasons why I wanted to do this. In retrospect, I didn't really know this at the time, but I love the diversity of, of the people and of the ideas and of the companies. How did they find you, like the paint union? I don't <laughs> think they're trolling on GitHub or anything. <laughs> I don't do any marketing whatsoever for my business. I put a lot of content out there because I like putting content out there, but I rarely talk about consulting. So it's often through referrals, people come to me. It's like, hey, I work with Jono or there's this balding English guy on the internet might be able to help you with your community. And the contracting union was actually through my father-in-law. He ran a company called AGA and they put kind of glass and aluminum into buildings. And he was very involved with this group. And he was like, my son-in-law can come and help you build a community. And I got a similar thing to another, I've forgotten the name of them right now, but they're another kind of contracting community where we ended up building a really pretty cool community on LinkedIn and LinkedIn groups of all places. That's where their audience was. Like with the contracting union, one of the most interesting challenges was nobody uses the internet. Con most contractors are on site. They've got a cell phone. They communicate primarily in phone calls and faxes. That's what I had to work with. So um, that was an interesting... Faxes? <laughs> like you said faxes, right? Yeah. Wow. I was like, you, you mean like analog email? <laughs> wow, faxes. That's incredible. So what was next? Telex? <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. So that's actually really fascinating because I didn't know that you didn't just do open source stuff. And community building is a whole profession. I think Gunnar could probably speak to that if you were here because he also yeah. does a sort of runs conferences and builds communities for people, although his is a bit more niche. One of the things right. I'm curious about is that since you have this huge diversity of clients, you have a unique insight into how open source communities work. To make that question not so large, how do you feel about, say, Discord and Discourse and Gitter and all these open sourcey IRC replacements that are going on right now? Yeah, I think it's been fascinating watching this. I think especially with open source, there's always so many layers of consideration, right? So one layer of consideration is the features and the functionality of what the thing is doing. Another is the kind of the open source ethical freedom side of things, whether it's free software, for example, which is very important to some people. I tend to look at it in a pretty mercenary capacity. I look at these platforms in like my job as a consultant, my job as an author, like with the YouTube stuff that I do, everything I do in my life is focused on one thing. And that's to help people understand how to build communities more in more easily and more effectively. And there is a second piece to this. The second priority that I've got is by extension that anybody who joins a community should get amazing value out of it. As far as I'm concerned, if you join a community and you don't get value out of it, that community hasn't earned you. You have every right to go off and go and complain about cyberpunk on the PlayStation 5, right? That's your right to do so. So when I look at these platforms, I look at, can you A, easily build a community and B, ensure that you can deliver amazing value to your audience? One of the concerns I have with chat channels and chat services in general, and I'd include Slack, Mattermost, Discord, Git, all of these, is that by definition, it's a linear stream of consciousness. So Slack claims that they've got history 
and you can kind of unlock history, Flames. for example, if you pay for it. It just doesn't work. And it's not Slack's fault. It's because passing out the right pieces of conversation in a stream of consciousness is very difficult to do so. So Justin goes into a chat channel, asks a question, Richard goes and replies to the question, and then it gets lost in the ether. So that means that when Jono comes in and asks the same question that Justin asked, we need another Richard or we need somebody, or Richard again to be there. So it becomes very kind of body consuming of having the number of people online to kind of respond to that. So while there's a huge level of gratification with online chat, it's an inefficient information architecture mechanism for most communities. That's why I think even Slack don't say that this is for community building, it's for building teams. The general thing that I like to focus on is that you point most of your community members to something such as a forum, such as I'm a big fan of discourse, or you point people to GitHub issues, for example. But the problem with forums, of course, is that people don't go into a forum and say, hey, how was your weekend? How are the kids? Nobody does that. But if you go into Slack, or you go into Discord, it's very common to say that. So I like to have both. I like to have the chat channels kind of like a social hangout. And then you have the forums, which is kind of where the work gets done. Because then I think you're maximizing the information architecture, but you're also making it easy for people to start building those relationships. Yeah, I think you hit it on the head, especially what you said about Slack is for building with teams and not Mm. communities. Because you can log into a bunch of open source projects, like the one we're on, Richard, you and I, there's such gaps yeah. like yep. in between because Pia is in Spain and Eric is yeah. in Utah. So it's just, you're on the East Coast. So it's just, you hit it on the head. What do you think the value is of having these side conversations of being able to ask, how was your weekend? How does that necessarily help community members have better engagement and build value for them when they're, say, trying to, I don't know, have better glass installations for the AGA? <laughs> right. So... To me, what brings people into communities is they're there to solve a problem. They're there to improve their future state, such as they're using a piece of open source software and they want to make better use of it and solve their problems or build their applications. I think what people stay for in the community is an intrinsic sense of belonging and a sense that this is just a good place for me to be. And when we unpack why that is, they still get a lot of value out of it. Like We can't ignore that. But it's value with a smile. There's people there. You get to know people. There's a sense of friendship there. There's a sense of companionship and camaraderie there. And that's what tends to get people to stick around. So to me, building those kinds of relationships is super important. It's one of the reasons why I experimented with, for example, like Stack Exchange years ago. So I'm pretty good friends with Jeff Atwood, who you know co-founded Stack Exchange and, and Discourse. And I reached out to Jeff one time and I was like, why on earth? This is why, like, why on earth don't you make, why don't you have a SaaS service that I can go and buy for my clients of Stack Exchange? I believe you can do it now, but back then you couldn't. And he said, he gave all kinds of reasons why. So I experimented and used an open source project called AskBot. And we built a community which was purely focused on Q&A. And it just lacked the personality. And it was hard work getting people in there as well. And so I think that personality piece is absolutely critical. So that's why I think we need to have multiple avenues for doing so. It's one of the reasons why. Do you remember when we used to go to conferences before this pandemic? No. So much of the value is just bouncing it. Like, conferences? Just bump- yeah. Do you remember those? Yeah. It's like, a, it's like a 3D Zoom room. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Those. Yeah. Yeah. It's like super realistic VR. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah, you'd like bump into someone in the corridor. Like this wasn't on your schedule. And I probably spent so much of my time just talking to people about my son and talking about music and talking about new gin that I've been drinking. They're all like the staples of a great friendship. I've got nothing to do with solving the problem. So doing that in an online setting, I think is tricky, but I think we can do it. And that's why I'm a big believer in 
having always having a venue, even if you don't have, let's say, a separate channel, Slack channel, for example, and a forum, but getting people together on Zoom or even using something like Clubhouse, just bringing people together to just be loose and social with each other. And, and I don't mean loose in a, I don't mean crass and ugly or anything like that. Just where people can speak more broadly is the, I think right. it's really important because that's how we build relationships as human beings. I couldn't agree more. And I've noticed a complete lack professionally since the loss of the coffee track due to COVID, <laughs> right? And especially even for fundraisers, that's really important in open source. I mean, yeah. you need to have those conversations and have friendships with funders in order to get it for larger projects, especially. Yeah, totally. One of my deepest existential questions about open source stems from looking at the MIT license. And if you look at it, it says provided as is. This code is as is. There's no more. I don't have to answer your issues. I don't have to merge your PRs. I can just, here it is. And that's that. And that's open source in name, right? It sounds like you're advocating for communities that go above and beyond the license as the delimiter for what open source is. Because open source ought to be a place where you're feel like you belong, which necessitates more than as is. Don't Mm. you see that as an undue issue or as a tension between the existential nature of open source as here's the thing I made, I'm going to go do other stuff now? My take on this is, I think one of the flaws of a lot of open source communities, not so much communities, but more individuals, is that they always talk about the most important thing is code, is getting code that can be created and shared with a group of people. And I disagree with that. I think the most important thing is the community. I think it is that collection of people. The code is super important. The code is the practical, tangible goods that you use to get value. And without the code, you haven't really got a lot. But to me, I'm engineering for impact here. Whether you're building a little project to just make certain types of unit testing easier, or whether you're building a a replacement for a major piece of proprietary software, we want to have an impact. We want to make a difference. That to me is what developers want to do. Like Software engineering is turned into this incredibly complicated life cycle with CICD and, and compliance and all these pieces. But most developers that I've ever met, they just want to write code that has an impact. So communities are an amazing way to do so. So I don't think there's anything wrong whatsoever with somebody hacking on something, sticking it up in GitHub or GitLab, licensing it under the MIT license, and then saying, you know what, I'm not really interested in building a community around this. Like, I don't really want to do all of this kind of happy slappy stuff and get people involved. I just want to put my project up and that's fine. To me, it misses out on a huge opportunity because the reason why I'm so passionate about community is because if you take 100 people, inside of those 100 people, there are so many ideas and insights and experiences and skills and so much time available that when we can get all of that out into the open, it makes us the best we can be as people. It unlocks the true magic of the human condition. That's what I love about communities. The tricky thing with communities is there's got to be something tangible in there in most communities. Like with summits, you don't need that. If you've got a breast cancer support group, then just being there for each other is enough. That's, that's fine. You don't have to create necessarily any tangible assets. But one of the reasons why I think open source is so amazing is that people can create things and then share them and have both the impact of the community and the technology. So nothing wrong with people going and just building, building a bit of code and sticking it up on GitHub. That's totally fine with me. But I think when you understand and you focus on the communities and you do it effectively, it's kind of getting to like the boss level in a video game. It's like, oh, let's see what we can do now kind of thing, you know? So I agree with you. One of the things I've noticed, though, in the past few years is that at least in the communities I'm in, and granted, I'm incredibly biased. I run the Sustained Podcast. Code is less of the 
end all. Everyone I talk to seems to know that it's about more than that. It's about the co- yeah. conduct. It's about the connections. And like, we all know that like yeah. someone who writes docs is just as important as someone who writes the core module. One of the questions I have in this post code only world that I see is how do you effectively talk to people in a way to manage them? And this is something which you have to do as a community builder to ensure that they have a balance between needing code and between fostering community that's effective and that doesn't burn them out emotionally. Because that's where I found that the struggle really happens, right? Like we, we know that code isn't the only thing, but it's also very important. We know that people are really important, but sometimes they don't commit all the code. How do you balance the needs of emotionally connecting to everyone in your group, especially when you may not be very good at it because not a lot of people are? And how do you make yep. sure that developers know that there is a balance to be met there to have the community thrive? So the way I look at it is... I think the approach that some folks take to communities, but also that people take to other activities that I would consider to make the world a better place, whether it's activism or whether it's recycling, like whatever it might be, is they try to convince and they focus on convincing and they outline a very strong ethical and societal benefit to doing that particular thing. And I think that will get some people in the game. But I think most people are much more kind of, I guess you could say practical than that. And they will do something if they can see the value and it's worth it and they can achieve their broader outcomes. This is actually core to my philosophy in life, which is when you understand your audience and you understand what they struggle with and you can help them build something that will help them to relieve that pain, to break down those roadblocks and to achieve what they want to achieve, then you don't need to convince them anymore because you've built the thing that's adding value to them. So the way I would tie this to developers is if you've got a developer who doesn't really see the point of a community and they're like, well, why don't I just write a bunch of code with some of my developer friends and then we'll be good. I would want to paint the picture of like, well, what are all the things that you don't like about writing code? What are the pain points? You don't like writing documentation. You don't like writing tests. You don't like the fact that you've got a hundred things you want to do and you've only got time to do 20 of them. These are all kind of common tensions within the engineering world. So your community here, when you build it and you invest in it, is a great opportunity for people to come in and help with these things. You can bring in more developers who can write code. You can bring in people to help with documentation. You can bring in people to write blog posts and do YouTube videos and do all kinds of cool stuff. But to do that, you need to open the door a little bit, right? You need to be inclusive, not just in terms of a rich demographic of people, which is always important, diversity of race and sexuality and all those wonderful things, but just a diversity of ideas and letting people come in and take your little baby, which is this project, and just put new clothes on it and see what it can do, right? Seeing what this project can do. So I think once people see the value and the potential of that, they're much more open to the kind of conversations that we will have about this, right? In terms of how you go about starting simple and building a community. The other thing I would say as well is, and I learned this the hard way as a consultant, when I started out as a consultant, I was so focused on wanting to deliver amazing value to my clients that I gave them very comprehensive strategy that was too big. It was too complex, right? There was too much. It's kind of like someone says, I'd like to learn to cook. And I basically give them everything they need to be a Michelin star chef. And they just want to boil an egg. (laughs) And I realized that there's the risk of kind of doing too much because you want to try and be as helpful as possible. So I think the other thing I would say to those developers is let's just start with one thing. Let's just do something real simple. Let's just create a Slack channel, for example. Yeah, it's not the perfect community building platform, but let's just create a Slack channel and start a Twitter account. And let's just go from there and agree that you're going to post two or three tweets a week, or maybe you're going to go and speak write the odd blog post and stick it up on Hacker News and see what happens, right? And just start there. 
and then let them feel the value and start seeing the potential of that unfolding. And then that's how I feel like we get people through. What I have learned is, and I see people doing this a lot and it makes me cringe, is people lecturing other people on why they should be building communities. Like it doesn't work. It just doesn't work from what I right. can tell. So what's interesting to me is you say you don't want people lecturing. And that reminds me that there's another byline to your name, right? You're not just a strategist. You're also an author. And an author mm. is someone who doesn't necessarily know their audience. It's someone who's actually putting words out, hoping that it'll land on the people who need to hear it. What have you written and how has that been received? Writing has been a really consistent part of my life, I guess you could say. I've always been interested in writing and formulating ideas. When I was a kid, when I was like 14, and I started getting on the internet in the late 90s, I used to write tutorials for how to play the guitar and put them up on Usenet. And, and one of the early, earliest contributions I made was the Linux documentation project. I used to write some just documentation for various... I, f- I can't even remember what it was, honestly, back now. And like I say, I used to write for magazines and things like that. My dream was always to write a book. And I was an obsessive fan of O'Reilly when I was about, about really from the age of about 17, no, probably about 18 upwards when I first got into open source. And I wrote a book called Linux Desktop Hacks. I co-wrote it with this guy called Nicholas Petroli. Originally, I was working with Tel Seguin, who was the girlfriend to Alan Cox, a pretty well-known kernel hacker. So I was a bit starstruck by the fact that I was working with her and, and Alan. And since then, I've written... I think six books now. My most recent book is called People Powered, How Communities Can Supercharge Your Business Brand and Teams. That was my first business book because writing tech books is different to writing business books. I didn't know this when I started out. When I wrote The Art of Community, for example. So I'll give you an example. It's actually kind of interesting. So when I wrote The Art of Community, which came out about, I think the first edition came out in 2008 and then the second edition came out in 2012, something like that. That was what I wanted to be my quote unquote career book. The book where you write it and people will read it and they'll consider that to be your primary contribution. And to all extents and purposes, it kind of achieved that goal. I'm very proud of it. It's way too big now. It's like 500 pages. And it's really designed for people like us, right? People who are on the ground building communities. It's too complicated for a founder who's building a business and just wants to know what are the first three steps that I should focus on. So I knew I needed to write something that was for a slightly higher level audience. But one of my annoyances with business books, and I'm a fairly prolific reader, is that you read a business book and then you'll take away like three principles that are just drowned out in examples. And I often feel pretty unfulfilled with a lot of these books. So I wanted to write a business book that had like a real solid amount of like a real framework and examples and guidelines and practical stuff that you can actually do. Now, when I wrote The Art of Community, I wrote a small proposal. I think it was two pages, sent it over to O'Reilly. They were already thinking about a book in community. We signed the deal. I wrote it and it was out a month after I'd finished writing it. Wrote it in about six months. With a business book, first of all, you need an agent because the big publishing, there's like 12 publishing houses and they won't talk to you unless you've got an agent. So that was my first job. I interviewed, I'll just try to get an agent. Like it wasn't that I was interviewing people because the business book audience, they're dealing with people like Hillary Clinton and James Mm -hmm. Comey. They're dealing with big deals who have got large (laughs) audiences. So me, (laughs) I do not fall into that category. So. I found an agent, Margot, who's in San Diego. And then we went and put the proposal. My proposal was about 33 pages and we spent six months in the proposal. And then we started, yeah. And then we started shopping it around the, the different publishers and we got three offers, which I was really happy with. But the timeline is they, because these are business books, they're putting such long timelines. I signed the deal in, it was the week after the 4th of July and my book wasn't scheduled to come out until over a year later. And I had three months to write it. I ended up writing... No, actually, no, I had four months. I ended up writing it in 10 weeks. It's just a much more 
it's a longer elongated process because they're focusing on a much broader audience of people. But I was so ill-equipped. I remember when I had the interview I had with all of these different publishers and they'd, they'd be like, so how big is your email list? And I was like, email list? And just really being able to write in a way that spoke to a much more general purpose audience. Because when I wrote The Art of Community, I was like, I want dentists and chiropractors and open source people to read this book and be able to find value out of it. And it totally wasn't that. It's so fundamentally dependent on the tech crowd because that's all I knew at the time. So I didn't have that luxury with People Powered. So yeah, it's been an interesting journey. Like I'm looking at People Powered and the star power behind that is just pretty crazy. I mean, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and I like Jim Zemlin. And yeah, yeah, I mean, it's just how did that all come together? Did you go out to them or did your agent go out to them? How does that all work? So some of these folks I already knew. One of the things I did, it was an intuition with The Art of Community and any budding author, I'd strongly recommend you do this too, is when I wrote The Art of Community, I thought, why don't I get some quotes from people who like the book and stick it in the first couple of pages? Because people go into a bookshop, at least they did back then. And they kind of, in the first couple of pages, they see all these endorsements and they'll probably be more likely to buy the book. And it worked. And I think it worked out quite well. So I wanted to take a similar strategy with People Powered. So like I've known Jim Zemlin for years. That was fairly straightforward. And then uh, there's all these like casual interactions I had had with people. Jamie Heineman, for example, from the Mythbusters, he emailed me years ago saying, Hey, I love Ubuntu. And I sent him a t-shirt. Oh, nice. And just vaguely stayed in touch. I was introduced to Mike Shinoda, who is the co-creator of Linkin Park through a kind of a similar thing. And Ali Velshi, who's an anchor on MSNBC. So there was some of these kind of like famous and semi-famous people that I wanted to pull in. Joseph Gordon-Levitt was a weird one because he was keynoting the Open Source Summit in LA. Right. And I don't know if anyone who's listening to this will, will have remembered that. He no, gave a kill, killer presentation. He's got this really cool community called Hit Record where creatives like come together and someone will create the music and someone will create the script and someone will film the green screen. And they've made movies that have been shown at Sundance. So I was speaking at the Open Source Summit anyway. And Zemlin was like, hey, do you want to come and meet Joseph Gordon-Levitt? I was like, sure. And I was honestly expecting to... I've been in similar situations before where you shake someone's hand and they're like, okay, that was cool, whatever. But we ended up chatting and the group kind of dispersed and him and I were still chatting and he was going to go on. And about 15 minutes before his session, we were just nattering away about communities with his community manager, this guy called Matt. And we just really hit it off. And I said, look, you probably get this all the time, but I'm writing a book. I'd love to just interview you and put some of it in the book. It's like, oh, dude, I'm totally down. Oh, wow. That's awesome. <laughs> like, what? This is like a major cool. <laughs> like, Hollywood person. Like, yeah. so. And he was genuinely just a super down to earth. He would be an amazing guest. For, like if he came on your podcast, right? Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, he's got like an armor-plated PR team that wraps around him like a glove. So. Yeah. No, I don't think we, we would meet that far, but thank you. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm thinking about it. And actually, it, it's really interesting that we're talking about stars because, I mean, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is awesome. I mean, who hasn't seen 10 Things I Hate About You, right? Or <laughs> movies. But what's interesting to me is that while he's famous, and I would recognize him if he walked into the cafe where I was, Eric Holscher probably has had a larger impact on the world. Right. right? Yeah. Read, read the docs is amazing. And that, you know, and he's a really down to earth guy who's not famous, who you wouldn't recognize. Yeah, exactly. He's just so a this good industry dude. Is, he is a good dude, but this yeah. is really interesting because open source in general allows people to not be stars, but by the nature of their work, have such a large impact if they build communities successfully. Yeah, totally. 
before you go on, I got a quick story where I learned this very directly because when I was at Canonical, I was at Canonical for seven and a bit years. And I went to work at XPRIZE that has these massive like incentive competitions to solve big problems in the world. Yeah. It's like my first XPRIZE that I worked on, $15 million competition, mainly funded by Elon Musk that challenged teams to build an app for an Android tablet that teaches kids how to read, write, and do arithmetic without a teacher within 18 months. So it was for the millions of kids in the world who don't have access to education. And it was a crazy place to work, very LA. And my first week was writing a script for Elon to go and do a video for us, for example. It was a really bizarre place. Nice. And it was a really fun place. But one of the things I realized, having spent so much time in the open source world, when I was at XPRIZE was the people there, wonderful, great, really meaningful work, but a lot of talking, a lot of planning. Mm-hmm. In the open source world, when we have an idea, we just kind of go and just do something. And I'd go to the open source events like OSCON, Open Source Summit, All Things Open, when I worked at XPRIZE, and I realized just how unique the open source world is. And not just in terms of like someone says, hey, wouldn't it be cool if, and then they just go and do something, whether it's a license or whether it's a code of conduct or whether it's a project, they just kind of go and have a go. And then it kind of catches a little bit of fire and then before it's becoming a real thing. But there's just a personality with open source people. The vast majority of people I've ever met in open source were super friendly, very down to earth, very engaging, and very kind, just a kind sense of collaboration. And it was only by kind of stepping out of that world and going to XPRIZE for a bit. And I didn't really plan on leaving open source. Some people were like, oh, he's left open source. I was like, no, but like the whole cliche, like, yeah, exactly. You don't get rid of me that easily. That whole cliche of like, you don't know what you've got until you've lost it or it's gone away. Yeah. I experienced that firsthand and it made me realize just how magical the open source world really is. It really is a special place. I agree. Speaking of Elon, I mean, I saw a tweet yesterday, which was really interesting where someone was, Elon tweeted and someone responded afterwards to the guy who made Dogecoin saying, hey, what did you think about sustainability when you made Dogecoin? And Dogecoin is, it's a cryptocurrency and it's only available because of open source. Bitcoin wouldn't exist without open source. It's one of the yeah. really interesting things about it. And yeah, totally. the guy responded and said, I wrote Dogecoin in two hours. Ha, lol. <laughs> and like, <laughs> you really to make something like that in two hours? I mean, JavaScript was written in 10 days. <laughs> right. yeah. We plan a it's lot, cool. but sometimes... There's actually an interview with John Lennon and Paul McCartney. And there, oh. a, a guy was asking him how long it took to write one of their hit songs. He's like, honestly, like four minutes. And he's like, ah, he's like, no, four minutes. It's just yeah. like... Sometimes it's just, if you got it, you got it. Yeah. Yeah. There's like a certain amount of gold prospecting, right? It's like, mm-hmm. you just knock something out in four minutes that changes the shape of music forever. Right. <laughs> like, wow, you're really good at prospecting for gold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which to be fair, I mean, it's kind of like the Picasso thing where he was 17 and he just drew a doodle on a train and someone said, could I have that? He's like, no, it's a million dollars. And he says, it's not just right. about the fact that I just drew it. It's about the fact that it's been 50 years of me drawing that got me to this drawing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So on that note of like the gravity of open source, allowing us to move fast, people being intelligent and being kind to being in the community and community focused to the point where they're able to do things collaboratively together. Given that you've been able to have perspectives from outside of open source, that you're a community Mm. builder who doesn't just limit yourself to OSI approved licenses. What do you think our challenges are? What do you think open source needs help with And what do you think is down the road for us if that's also part of the answer? Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a great one. So if you'd have asked me this question 10 years ago, 
my response would have been open source impacting more industries and more areas. We'd like cracked infrastructure and we've cracked kernel and certainly kind of like development frameworks and things like that. But I actually think we're seeing more and more of that happening. Like we're seeing open source spanning out into so many different areas. So I don't think that's as much of a concern for me as it used to be. It's a difficult one to ask because there's kind of different Zoom levels. Like there's certainly more granular things that I think we need to kind of deal with and we need to wrestle with. I still think that building open source communities is too difficult. One of the things that I say to almost every platform company that I work with, this was something I lobbied for at GitHub and my wife is the chief operating officer at GitHub and I've bitten her ear off about it as well. Is that, for example, if somebody goes and creates a project in GitHub, brand new project, in my mind, the platform should show you how to build a community. You shouldn't have to be dependent on hiring a consultant like me or even reading my books or any of the other wonderful community books out there. The platform should be holding your hand and showing you how to do it. In the same way that when you sign up for a brand new meetup to run a meetup on meetup.com, one of the things I love is that it guides you through how to go about building a meetup. And I think that there's still too much super valuable knowledge that's locked inside of our heads. Now, you can never systematize that completely into platforms, right? There's always going to be a need for the expert practitioner. But we should be able to get much closer towards most people being successful with open source because there's a massive long tail of small open source projects that want that community that haven't got it. And they haven't got it primarily, not because of a lack of intelligence or time, just because they're spinning their wheels and they're not doing the things that are helping them to move the needle in building a community. So I think there needs to be more productized implementation of how to build communities. I would also go so far as to say that I think we as a community need to get over this obsession with metrics. There is a, just a constant drip feed of obsession with building these incredibly complicated dashboards full of metrics. And I think the philosophy is, if we have a dashboard that's got a thousand metrics in it, then if we need that information in the future, then we're covered. We've covered our bases. But that's kind of a doomsday prepping approach to the world. That's having a bomb shelter filled with macaroni and cheese, just in case. <laughs> I would much rather say, okay, what are the things we don't know today? And what are the three metrics that we can use to figure that out? No more than three. What is the minimum amount of metrics that we can use to answer that question effectively? And it kind of ties into my first point. Like I see all these amazing analytics platforms. And again, I give this feedback to some companies where I've talked to them about this is, sure, I can see, for example, all of these metrics about how a project in GitHub is performing. But I think what most developers want to know is like, what does normal look like? If one metric is time to first response in a pull request, well, if it's three days for me, is that good? <laughs> is that not good? I don't know. And to me, these platforms have got all of this data, all of this insight buried in them. I feel like there's more and more of a responsibility. I think if we really want to build scale with open source, which I think we can, and we've seen scale happening, right? Open source is, is rule in the world, but the platforms have got to help that long tail of projects succeed more with community building. And I would much rather, for example, platforms like GitLab, GitHub, Jira, whatever else, I'd much rather they reduce the feature set and focus on all of these little nudges in the platform that will help you to build communities. That to me is the most important thing. And this table stakes stuff, like, I mean, I feel like diversity is so fundamental and so important to our community that we shouldn't even need to say that this is a priority. Like it should just be obvious to everybody. And sadly, it isn't obvious to everybody. So to me, diversity is not just a great code of conduct, but also it's great leadership and it's great moderation and it's inspiring diverse collaboration as well. Not just, hey, we'll deal with the trolls. It's 
that we will... Remember when I talked about the 100 people and all that value that's in their heads? But if you've got 100 of the same person, you can get 100 of the same ideas. But if you've got loads of different people in there, there's so much more insight, so much more experience, so much more humanity gets pulled into the mix. So I still think we need to very much focus on the diversity piece as well. Well, as one graying white dude to one balding white dude, I totally hear you on that. <laughs> but no, really, like, and that was really eloquent and wonderful. And Chano, I'm unfortunately going to have to say this is going to be one of those podcasts where I feel like I could sit and talk to you for like five hours <laughs> yeah. or five days at a conference it's over a, coffee it's about a, this. But yeah. this is a time-bounded thing. And the metrics for this podcast is my editor happy with the amount of time I have. And that's one of the things I have to take care of. So Respect the editor. We respect the editor. <laughs> for people who would like to read your books or know who you are in the internet, where can they learn more about things inside of your head? So probably a good place to start is my website, which is johnobacon.com, J-O-N-O, bacon, like the delicious breakfast food.com. I fortunately have such a stupid name that I tend to be that on the social media platforms with the exception of Instagram. There's some other imposter has taken John O'Bacon. So I'm John O'Bacon Graham on there. And my, yeah, exactly. And to be honest, uh, it's fine with me because I now know that I'm only two degrees away from Joseph Gordon-Levitt. So the bacon <laughs> thing is working for me. <laughs> the bacon degree thing, right? Yeah. And my most recent book is People Powered, How Communities Can Supercharge Your Business Brand Teams. It's on Amazon and all good bookshops and probably some bad bookshops as well. So. And Audible. There are no bad bookshops. I ordered it's on Audible. And, Audible. and I read cool. it as well. I wasn't going to have anyone else read it. So you yeah. get my velvety English baritone as well. So Thank you so much. This is a time where we go to Spotlight. Spotlight is where we highlight a project or thing or person or anything really, which we think needs light on it. Justin, what is your spotlight today? Well, it's Jono's wife's company before she joined GitHub, Bitnami. <laughs> what does Bitnami do? They basically like create applications out of MySQL or like so you could easily install it like on a Mac without having to do any command line interface or WordPress. It's just a one-click installable thing. Yeah. Cool. Right. Yeah. Thank you. I didn't know that. That's exciting. I'm looking for that. My spotlight today is Yves Menard, Yves Menards, that's Y-V-E-E-S, The Book of Nights. I found this book because Gene Wolfe quoted it in one of his books. And what I really loved about it was one paragraph, which says, you asked to be a knight, not a scholar of knighthood. To learn more would make you a scholar. What's left for you is to do and try. And I love this idea as applied to open source communities. And the idea that you shouldn't learn how to build a community perfectly. At some point, you just got to go and get in the Slack and talk to people. And that's actually doing the work. So the Book of Nights taught me that in a new way, for which I'm excited. John Bacon, what is your spotlight? So I think mine is going to be, there's a, a really cool project that I'm guessing most of your audience haven't heard of, and it's called Arches. And they are an open source project. They're actually a client of mine. I am working with the Getty Conservation Institute, and they didn't really have any experience of open source at all, but they wanted to build a piece of software that would essentially track the inventory of cultural heritage sites and assets around the world. So they just went and built this really cool open source project with Django, having had no experience and built a really cool little community around it. And I just think it's awesome. It's like, the, it's such a great example of open source in action. Awesome. Cool. And that's it. That's all the time we have today. Jono, it was awesome listening to you. I wish we could have you on every week to learn more stuff about how to build sustainable communities. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. It's a pleasure. <laughs>